Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. It's rare these days for a short story writer to cross over into mainstream consciousness in a big way. Even one as acclaimed and loved as today's guest, George Saunders. Saunders has been writing stories for decades. He has several story collections that have been named New York Times Notable Books. He's won the MacArthur Genius Grant. His work frequently appears in The New Yorker, Harper's, McSweeney, and GQ. And he was named by The New Yorker in 1999 as one of the 20 writers under 40 who have shaped contemporary fiction. Yet even with all those accolades, NPR's book critic, Maureen Corrigan, had never heard of him when his latest story collection, 10th of December, was declared by the New York Times Magazine last month as the best book we'll read all year. There's a good chance you've heard the name George Saunders since that declaration. 10th of December has gone on to garner incredible acclaim, making it the literary phenomenon of the new year. We're fortunate to have him here today. Welcome, George Saunders, to Between the Covers. Oh, thanks for having me, David. So let's start with your style. I'm sure there's a lot of people who are who are holding 10th of December right now who, ha- who have never read George Saunders before, and they're going into a, a very particular universe, one that I think is hard to describe if they haven't seen your prose before. You hear all sorts of adjectives that are, that are strange together, dystopic, hilarious, uh, wildly experimental, yet humanistic. So maybe you can just start with letting us know how you, how you either developed or found this, this voice for yourself. Yeah, I, well, I, for me, there was a big breakthrough uh, when I was about 30, where I kind of dropped a, a, a sort of stiff, uh, formal way of approaching it that had sort of come from my background. I, I was raised in Chicago, didn't know writers. So I got that kind of uh, class anxiety about it, and everything was very kind of stiff and formal and Hemingway-esque. And then at some crisis moment, I... I reverted to a set of skills that I had as a kid, which was to be funny, to be a little pop culture-ish, to be a little sci-fi. And that was a real breakthrough. So so now, I mean, I don't, I, the, the stories tend to be a little dark. They're often described as dark. But to me, it's more like, um, I, I think of it as kind of a, mm, a little bit of an edgy puppet show. Like, let's take the world um, at the end conditions, often an end condition where things are going really badly, and then just see how people behave. You know, and uh, and then the other component that's really important for me is just kind of verbal energy. I, that's actually my whole doorway in, into starting a story. Try to get a voice that's got some something, you know, pizzazz, some kind of energy, uh, and then just let it lead me, you know, wherever it will. So it's kind of, I, I guess it's more for, for me. It's I think of it more as uh, performance and sort of trying to be entertaining, uh, trying to get a reader engaged, maybe sometimes in spite of herself. Uh, and sort of this magical group of attributes that would make it fun to read. That, that's my th- my hope, anyway. Fun, you know. Well, it's interesting that you say fun because you know one of the one of the adjectives associated with you, experimental. I think most people, when they think of experimental, the first word they think of is difficult yeah. or opaque. And and the second word is run outside. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. and you do. It does seem like even though your stories are out of the box, like fun seems to be the. Uh, a high premium in the story. Exactly. Too. And I always, I always, whenever I think experiment, I always try to link the word essential with it. So uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to experiment, but I want the experiments to be essential experiments, meaning does this, if this story is weird or quirky or dark or whatever, is it necessary? And is it necessary to get the reader closer to some kind of truth about life? And my, my idea is that uh, life is so strange and so unknowable and so beautiful that you might have to, uh, resort to extraordinary means to really get some of that on the page. In other words, some of the, maybe, you know, you could argue some of the, the old storytelling tropes are a little worn out. Uh, 
as they've always been, actually, you know, probably 300 years ago, there was someone telling the same old story. But life in its actual vitality might take a little bit of a, uh, a jump start to, if you want to get some of that into your work. So that's called experimental. But to me, the bad kind of experiment is one that's just avoiding the issues and, and trying to almost uh, avoid the hard stuff in writing, heart, emotion, uh, and so on, uh, by, by sort of shelving those whole things and being fancy. And that's not so interesting to me. Well, well, let me take that a step further. You you mentioned um, some old tropes that maybe aren't aren't quite as effective as they used to be, uh, and that um, it made me think of. We, I've had a, a science fiction writer on China Mieville before, who really great. who yeah. really talks about how he feels that the fantastic is more equipped to deal with the issues of the day than realist fiction, which yeah. he considers a, a genre fiction too. Mm, so sure, sure. I was curious about that because he, he, with your work, because your work not only is experimental, but sometimes is futuristic or actually has explicit science fiction sure. elements in it. And he quoted Adorno talking about Kafka and saying Kafka, it was the only writer suited to write about the 20th century. And, and I, I'm presuming that's because he wasn't writing about a realistic Jewish clerk in Prague, but about someone transforming into a cockroach, for right, instance. Right. Do you feel that same benefit to fantastical fiction as a way to approach the real issues of today? Yeah, and I would even maybe uh, modify that to say just the real issues, period. Because, you know, if you go back to like Tristram Shandy, uh, Gogol, uh, uh, even Shakespeare, there's, there's the same move, which is to say, the, the I would say it this way, the, the preconceptual world, you know, when we walk out on the street and all that beautiful, beautiful energy hits us, uh, there's a split second there where we're really perceiving it. Uh, we haven't labeled it and thereby reduced it yet. We're just in it, you know. And I think that's somehow the moment you're trying to recreate or simulate in that instant when the reader first reads your prose. Now, that's tricky because we're habituated. So you say, oh, I'm on a street in Portland, Oregon. No big deal. But that street out there is not that. It's much more. So I think the, my goal is to try to just hint at that instant moment of crazy perception. And sometimes to do that, you have to go a real long way around. You know? And I think when Kafka you know, wrote The Metamorphosis, he was, that was probably the most honest autobiographical way he could explain the way life felt to him. And the, the reason we love him is because it's so counterintuitive, it's so bold. Uh, and it's so, it's so kind of gutsy in rejecting what I've heard described as, uh, uh, what's it called, consensus reality, you know, the, the way that, of course, language always reduces uh, reality to simple things because that's how we get around. But but there is that moment just before that happens, which is so deliriously wonderful. And I, and I think that's what we can sometimes get to in fiction, you know. It's weird to me that um, people assume that experimental fiction is new. Like it's a new phenomenon and that at one point everything was realist. And you mentioned some right. great um, touchstones from the past, but even the first novel, Don Quixote, is exactly. dealing with yeah. postmodern themes and dealing right. with the relationship between writer and, and reader. Totally. And I think, you know, what's helpful for me is to say experimental is actually a phrase that came in maybe maybe in the 30s, certainly in the 70s. And, and it's very, in a certain way, it's reactionary because it opposes experimental, i.e. decadent, silly, non-essential, masturbatory, to the real thing, which is, you know, we know what reality is. And that that's a pretty dusty distinction. So so for me, if, many times if there's a binary that appears, which in writing it often does, funny versus serious, you know, but um, if, you, if you disengage the binary, 
say, for, let's not use the words realism and experimentalism. What happens if we do that? Like I, I, Tobias Wolf was my teacher at Syracuse, and he went. He I said, he said, you know, all good writing is experimental because if not, why would you do it? If you weren't venturing into something new, why why bother? Yeah. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today to George Saunders about his new short story collection, 10th of December. I had a, a question about your Hemingway phase when you hadn't yet found your, your George Saunders voice. Do you feel like mimicry is part of learning to be a writer? And when I, when I ask that, I mean, the idea, you know, with painting, you see all of the great painters, they do their still lives. They do mm-hmm. their apples in the bowl and before they go to the cubist phase. Did you find that, like, copying Hemingway was part of learning the rules that you would later break? Or do you feel like it was just sort of a blind alley that no, no, you had to totally find your way essential, out of? No, no, it's totally essential. You, you're learning the rules you totally break, but you're also learning a skill skill sets that you, you'll use forever, you know. I, I think, the, I mean, anybody who's got kind of a the ver- linguistic or verbal, uh, you know, uh, tendencies that a writer, a young writer would have, is going to imitate very naturally. And and it's kind of sweet because when I was imitating Hemingway, I, I didn't think I was imitating Hemingway. I thought I was taking on the mantle of, of all real writing as embodied in Hemingway. And uh, I was, of course, going to take it a step beyond. Uh, and also I thought, I really thought as an 18-year-old or uh, 20-year-old, that his worldview was the most advanced that had ever occurred. And of course you would you would in, inhabit it because everything else was nonsense, you know. So it's uh, and I see it in young writers I work with. Sometimes they they don't do it in any kind of you know acquisitive or cynical way, but they really are so mesmerized and charmed by Pynchon or by David Foster Wallace that the world for a while remakes itself in that prose, and you see it that way. And I, I, for me, the wonderful moment is when you 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 grow out of that where you're. Your personal experience, which you've been denying, denying through that whole phase, says, "Wait a minute! I'm you're 33. <laughs> I'm not going to be denied anymore." And you feel that friction between the the the, the worldview that, say, the Hemingway-esque prose allows you, and the world you're feeling in your gut, and you go, "No, I won't. I'm 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 not doing this anymore. And I'm gonna I'm gonna find my real thing, even if it's sort of disappointing. I'm gonna go off and find it." Well, it feels like there's very little overlap between the Saunders style and the Hemingway style at this point. And and one one of the things I wanted to probe a little further was mm. an aspect of your writing, which is how voice-driven it is. Mm. And with a lot of your stories, maybe all of your stories, we're really driven by voice more than place mm. or any other aspects of, of fiction. And it's to such a degree that we're often trapped within sort of an internal feedback loop within somebody's head. And we see, as the reader, this gigantic gulf between this world, this endless stream of thoughts, and this other world, the external world, that doesn't really match up so well with what's going on in the character's head. Right. What Tell us the what's compelling about that mm-hmm. gulf between those two sure. things. Well, I mean, I'll give you kind of two answers. One is, you, you know, this is kind of weird to talk about, but I think the, the biggest truth I learned is, is a writer, you got to play to your strengths. So if you would like to be a subtle minimalist that does everything with physical details, but you suck at it, you're out of luck. And so you act, there's that kind of, related to the last question, there's that phase where you're like, is there anything I can do that has some energy? And the thing that shows up is often, in my experience, it, it was very natural to me. This voice stuff is, uh, I've been doing it since I was a kid, you know, for fun. Um, but it's often something that you kind of had overlooked. That's not literary, you know. So, so in some ways, I just do it because I can. I, you know, I can sustain it. And when I, 
even thinking about it now. I'm like, oh, that's fun to do voices, you know. But then the other thing that, that I think I stumbled on uh, from years of doing voices is that at this point, my model of reality is basically that there's a bunch of thought streams walking and driving around, you know. So we're sitting here across the table. You've got a thought stream going on. I've got one going on. You, you know, we all we both know that the other one is real, but we're not quite buying it, you know. Uh, and everything that you do today and feel today and accomplish today is going to be mediated or, or maybe caused by your thought stream. So when you think about, you know, the confusion in the world and the evil and also the beauty and all, it's literally just those two thought streams kind of hitting each other and sparks going off. So for me, that's a really exciting fictional model is to say, well, uh, you really could pretty much get at the truth by just modeling those. And the, the thing that I've been working on, I, I think of it as third-person ventriloquist, which is you do kind of a traditional stream of consciousness thing, but but you allow yourself to be constrained by the the uh, thought habits and diction of the character. So instead of being like, so, so Tolstoy uh, would always be Tolstoy. He'd inhabit a horse or a, uh, a prince, but but he always availed himself of the full Tolstoyan diction, which is why he can do nine million characters. But I was kind of interesting in uh, the subjectivity. Uh, if I'm going to do you, I have to, so to speak, I have to I have to think uh, in your in your diction, with your precise experience, and most interestingly, your your neuroses and your repetitive thought streams and stuff, and that's it's constraining because you can't I can't do nine hundred of those, but sometimes in a story you can do two or maybe three. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And and when you mentioned Tolstoy, I always when I'm reading him, I'm amazed and also envious that he's able to move around the like the camera that the the readers are using. Yes. One minute they're totally in someone's head and somehow the next sentence right. were like we're in very distant yeah, he'll even, i mean there's parts in war and peace where he'll do a, a, a person the person that that guy's talking to and then he'll pan back and do the collective the women you know it's just it's really it's pretty amazing it's godlike yeah he's such an amazing and i think that you know he of course it's a it's a verbal skill but in his case he had that incredible empathetic tendency uh, sort of ability to extrapolate from his phenomenon to everyone else's and that's why he, we revere him i think well one one thing you mentioned about sparks between two different thought streams which to me would ultimately be the the place of drama in in yes. a story i i wonder if that's why most of your stories have multiple points of view I, I think that the typical way people think of a short story because of the economy of a short story and there's not a lot of time that you're not going to jump into different people's heads too often. But if you're going to go so deeply into one person's thought stream for a sense of drama, it seems like you almost need to jump into another person's head and then see what happens. No, that's a very perceptive. And what, what it, in, in practice, what will sometimes happen is I don't mean to have a second person, uh, but you need you, the first person will manifest something that needs kicking, you know, or, or needs challenging. And uh, and then the other thing I've noticed is it's actually, you know, I, I like all writers, I can't, I don't get plot. I don't understand it. I don't like it. I, whenever I try to uh, come up with it outside of a story, it, it makes me crazy. So one thing I found is if you, if you spend a lot of time uh, creating and then revising one of these voice-driven monologues and really working with it as text, you know, uh, making it, trying to make it sing, um, what happens, I think, is that the, the, the lens gets very fine. And a very, a very small tendency in the person's character will sort of get uh, heightened a little bit. And that's, that's where plot comes from. So I have a story called Victory Lap in this book. And we're just having a lot of fun with this, the voice of this teenage girl, kind of imitating Chekhov in a story called The First Opera or something like that, or After the Opera. 
and uh, just kept kind of playing with her, had a lot of fun with it. And in the process, she kind of coughed up this uh, naive but sweet mindset that basically all you have to do in life to be good is decide to be good i.e. all these adults who are compromised had a failure of character at some point, you know. So she's kind of sweet, but she's also a little bit arrogant. So then having done that, then you think, huh, that's kind of a BS idea. How do I objectif objectify my personal objection to her philosophy? Well, then you have somebody arrive. So it's very interesting that if in, in sometimes if we have a, um, a lack in our skill set, i.e. I couldn't do plot, that makes you lean into something harder, voice, and then, strangely, that becomes a side door into plot also. So it's, it's endlessly fascinating, you know, the way... Yeah, that, that is something I wanted to, to mention also. It seems very mysterious. You, you talk about how you start with voice. You don't start with trying to put across a theme or a set of ideas or to bring a point home. Right. But nevertheless, even though you're really going deep into voice... It feels like an idea and a theme is accomplished, and I, I don't know how that all happens in the end, but... I, I don't either, actually, but it does, and it, that's one of the things that really keeps me addicted to the process, because it's not in your control, and yet it it's very shapely, and it's very uh, logical, and so I always thought if you could keep your conceptualizing mind, you know, the, the, the mind, the writer mind that wants to... Uh, pull the big manure truck with your politics and your thematics in it and dump it on the reader. If you can keep that quiet, then things like meaning and politics, they're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. I can't, don't bother me right now. I'm making a joke or I'm, you know, I'm trying to make this living room. And because you, you of course, are uh, the writer has all those things going on, they will leech in and they'll come in so honestly. Uh, and they won't be abstract, but they'll be intimately linked to action and character. So it's kind of, again, I've been doing this 25 years, and I don't get it. Uh, the only working model I, I have is that sometimes the story is completely whole and beautifully complex in your subconscious or whatever, and in trying to tell it, you break it, you drop it, and it shatters. So revision is kind of trying to patch it back together. But if you get close to it, you go, wow, that was pretty, much more complicated uh, in the final analysis than I could ever have imagined at the beginning, you know. We're talking today with George Saunders about his new short story collection, 10th of December. You're listening to Between the Covers. If someone was going to ask me, George, what 10th of December was about as a collection, the thing that would come to mind for me is um, civil disobedience or mm. or moral courage. And it's related to this idea of voice in, in my mind. And I'm curious if this sounds strange to you, but when I, when I, was, when I read most of the stories in the collection, uh, it feels like either there's an exertion of a certain directive from the outside. So say with Escape from Spiderhead mm -hmm. or Exhortation, there's there's obvious pressure for people to behave in a certain way. And there's a consequence if they're not going to behave the way this external force is trying to pressure them to. But also in the other stories where there isn't that, there's an internal directive, either the internalized voice of a parent or, um, or, or whatever, or a self-conception right. of themselves. And really the moral moment is when the character decides to be disobedient to that voice or to fails to be disobedient mm. to that voice in, in my mind. And, and it's, it's really fascinating because you talk about uh, being voice-driven rather than idea-driven. And here we have this, uh, this animal creeping in from the forest, like you mentioned, right. that really brings in this, this uh, hefty content to the mm. stories in my mind. That's a great read. And, and, I, and I, as you were talking, what I thought about was uh, 
you know, one of, as I'm getting older, one of the things that really is kind of gnaws at me and is interesting is uh, this idea. Okay, when I was when I turned 40, I remember this. That was many years ago now. But I was walking up to campus, and I had some little thought burst, you know, just some little that in the moment felt like, you know, it's me thinking. And then I thought, holy cow, I've been having that thought burst in different forms since I was eight or five, you know. And this kind of sudden realization that there's a part of the thing we call us that's actually a mechanism, and it performs repetitively, you know. Uh, and that was somehow at 40, it was kind of shocking because I thought, wow, so does that mean, you know, God willing, I live to be 80, you know. On my 79th birthday, is that thought burst going to appear? And I felt with great certainty, oh, yeah, what else, what else would appear? So that was kind of intriguing. One, to see if you could somehow get behind the curtain of that and try to, you know, like— uh, get clear of it, but also the thought that you we are kind of uh, the, the the product of and a prisoner of our habitual thought patterns, and those things are coming from somewhere, and they're coming, I think, from neurology, but also from external sources. So all the ways that we internalize authority, uh, and and then somehow the way that that's related to that um, occasional feeling you have that there's something incredibly luminous in you that's that's there. But why the hell is it always blocked? You know, why the heck is it hell that we that we uh, know it's there? We've we've basked in its glow before, but you can't re- reproducibly get there. And I think that now, when I ask that question, I think it's the habitual mind that stops you. You know, you get up in the morning and you and you make a number of mistakes. You know, you you sort of think that uh, you're central, you're permanent, and that your story is really the. Your story is really the main thread of this novel that is the universe, and everyone else is a nice side player. And so all the, I think all those things, especially I'm finding as you get older, they, they kind of get irritating. It gets irritating that you you can feel that you're a product of these different forces, but you somehow can't get out of them. And I think that you put your finger on the way that that worked its way into the book. Yeah, it's very interesting. Well, you did a series of travel articles for GQ, and one of them they sent you to Nepal to, to try to find this boy called the Buddha boy who yeah. was supposedly living solely off of meditation and not not eating or drinking. And you have this paragraph I'm going to read, if you don't mind, sure. that, you, that you wrote in this article that, to me, captures this idea in, in your writing around the perpetual, perhaps neurologically wired thought stream. Mm-hmm. The mind is a machine that is constantly asking, what would I prefer? Close your eyes, refuse to move, and watch what your mind does. What it does is become discontent with that which is. A desire arises, you satisfy that desire, and another arises in its place. This wanting and rewanting is an endless cycle for which, turns out, there is already a name, samsara. Samsara is at the heart of the vast human carnival. Greed, neurosis, mad ambition, adultery, crimes of passion, the hacking to death of a terrified man on a hillside in the name of a more pure and thus perfect nation. And all of this takes place because we believe we will be made happy once our desires have been satisfied. That feels mm-hmm. almost like it could be a, a blurb. Yeah, that's for what I just said, December. but better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. but it also feels like it mirrors to me the mechanics of mm. of um, meditation when you talk about thought stream, and I think about the concept in Buddhism of monkey mind mm-hmm. and the idea that you're trying to cultivate this other voice and right. and this other voice that, as you mentioned, might be trapped. Yeah, and and could be a deeper self that's yeah. less habituated yeah 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 i mean and, and i think it's interesting how um you know art is is a weird way t- uh to kind of t- to be on that spot you know to kind of and because you're basically uh producing something 
and evaluating it kind of openly and then re revising to taste and and uh, so in a certain way you're in touch with your own uh, your own thought stream iteratively which is kind of a you know a, a nice to have that leisure you know yeah. well another one of guests that have been on between the cover before was a past student of yours Adam Levin and oh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, he we were talking and and I learned that he actually has literally has a parrot that sits on his shoulder when he, he writes yeah, yeah. and um, and then we got to talk about the voice the voices on our shoulders metaphorically when we're writing and, and he mentioned you actually as the as one of those voices when he's doing editing of his work and I was curious if you have voices you know sit, voices sitting on your head, shoulder yeah. that are people you refer back to 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 help you in, in when you're writing yeah. people that have taught you before or maybe just people you've read yeah I think for me you know the, the honest answer is that uh, there I, I always think of it as a there's a pressure at the back of the throat, actually, that, and and that is somehow related to whatever voice you can and want to do at that moment. Whatever voice is handy, basically. And uh, for me, when I look at that, it's sort of like, I mean, it's funny. There there are a few literary voices. Isaac Babel is a big one. Uh, Barry Hanna a little bit, uh, but also Monty Python. That that mode. Uh, some of the, like some of the movie stuff and some of the sketches, just really that that kind of staccato, fast, smart, but not too high tone, uh, and also there's a lot of Steve Martin, uh, early Steve Martin, that kind of. Uh, I, I always, and I think in terms of uh, when I'm writing it, there's something about staccato and and variation and rhythm that I can kind of feel as a thing that isn't. Uh, it's not. It's not conceptual, but it's like an urge. You know, I, I'm not. You, you can't be articulate about it because it really is just like. Um, it's like improvisation and music, I think, where you, you, you know it when you're on it, but if you start thinking about how to get on it, you will never, you never, never get there. So. Well, talking about staccato, and, and I know you also talk about compression in your, in your work as well, there's just a lot of push right now for you to write a novel. To me, that's something that, I, that irritates me to think that there's nothing like complete yeah. and fine about just writing short stories. Right. That there's some that it's an evolution to another form, right. and I was just curious what you, what you were feeling about a lot of people sort of making a charge that George Saunders now needs to write a novel yeah. to really cement his name and right. as if that's the you know I'm, I've got honey I can't come in I've got to cement my name I, I think that the funny thing is that uh, the push to you know you kind of go there's that's like a push out of jello nobody can you know they can say go ahead and do it and you think well i mean the the best quote is that flannery o'connor you know uh, a writer can choose what he writes but he can't choose what he makes live and so i'm somebody who's been doing this for 25 years and i have tried to write longer and so far it's never cohered and so i feel like my sort of sacred bond with my art is to go i'll figure it out and i certainly won't do anything that uh, you know that doesn't work, and and I you know I've been basically I've been deciding on the length of these pieces for twenty five years, and and you know, several of the pieces in Tenth of December almost became novels before they went back to short stories. Throughout my career, there've been there's been this because I think you know I, I play sort of high and holy about it, but in, in fact I always have been open to the idea and sort of hopeful that I that I would, but over and over again I've had the experience of writing something. And having that day where you go, I think this is the one, you know. And then you have a three months of just woo. And then and the fourth month you go back and go, oh, I made a wrong turn there. Uh, because I was respecting what I wanted to do instead of what the story wanted me to do. So if you, if you go on the idea that the story basically has a DNA, you know, or Stuart Dybeck says the story is always talking to you, but you don't always listen. Uh, then you're, I would say your first and sacred duty is to say to the text, what do you want to do? 
what do you really want to do? Like if your kid was a little sick, what do you want to do? Not what, you know, not what I think you should do, but what would benefit you the most? So you really have to step aside after that initial impulse to start the story and listen to the story. Well, and, and, and that's what you, that's it. That's what revision is, is active listening to what the story is telling you. So line by line, you know, you, uh, I always say you've got like a little meter in your head, you know, and, and there's a needle that puts in, that says positive and you, or there's, you want to keep the needle in the positive zone. And as you're reading, so then the big thing is to be right there listening to the story without too many attachments or preconceptions about how great it was yesterday when you read it. And if the needle dips into the negative, don't panic. But kind of just note it, like, all right, so somewhere on page three, I started stinking up the joint. I wonder why, you know. And, and at that point, even you're not really trying to get a, a, an articulated answer, but a gut feeling like, oh, yeah, that's a little. That, sometimes it's just as simple as a sentence is not doing its full work or it's a little blurry. There's a logical problem. So it's interesting that this big thing, you know, really is, is a matter of inches as you're doing. Maybe like football, you know, if you want to. Uh, have a running play it's really a matter of a couple of inches either way that people where how people are arranged so um i when i was younger and that hemingway phase i got so kind of uh wrapped up in my own thoughts about writing i couldn't proceed and the the big move was to simplify and say look a story is a temporal a linear temporal object that starts on page one and goes to page whatever the reader experiences everything a sentence ah, a phrase at a time that's the only place to win that battle is a phrase at a time. And all the things that we talk about come out of there. It's a necessary condition that they get to the end of the story for it to have a theme. So your first battle is to get the person through the story a line at a time by way of uh, charm, basically, some kind of charm, some kind of uh, intimate thing where the reader's being rewarded second by second and therefore doesn't bolt. Well, it was great having you on Between the Covers, It was George. really a pleasure. You're a great interviewer. We're talking today with George Saunders, the author of the new short story collection, 10th of December.